Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Lath, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 24th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, July 21. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. Today, I'm doing something a bit different. As mentioned recently in the newsletter, my husband Zach and I just welcomed our second child into the world. We've been a bit overwhelmed and sleep-deprived since Chase's arrival, and as a result, I didn't have time to secure an outside guest to join me for this episode. Fortunately, I have the perfect podcast guest sitting right next to me. He's smart, he's opinionated, and he has written about law and legal affairs for both scholarly and popular publications. Plus, he's married to me, so he couldn't say no. Please meet my husband, Zachary Baron Shemtov. He graduated from Wesleyan, which just got rid of legacy admissions, so too bad for our kids, then earned a PhD in criminal justice from the City University of New York Graduate Center. After teaching criminology and criminal justice at Central Connecticut State University as an assistant professor, he went on to Georgetown Law, where he served as editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Law Journal. Following a stint in big law and clerkships for the Second Circuit and Southern District of New York, he now works at a boutique law firm in New York City where he focuses his practice on white-collar criminal defense and commercial litigation. He also once had a podcast of his own, Cruel and Unusual, a podcast about punishment, which you can still find on iTunes. Of course, any opinions expressed on this podcast are Zach's own, not those of any entity he was or is affiliated with, including but not limited to educational institutions and employers. Zach, thanks for joining me. So glad to be here, David. So here's how today will work. I have teed up several topics of interest, which I have not shared with Zach in advance, where we might or might not agree. The topics almost all relate to judges, judicial affairs, and jurisprudence, topics that Zach and I have studied and written about for years, and topics we care about deeply. Indeed, true story. We met online on OkCupid after I noticed that the interests section of Zach's OkCupid profile included jurisprudence, And I thought to myself, here is the man for me. Yes, we are huge legal nerds. Sometimes Zach and I agree. We have written two New York Times op-eds and two law review articles together. And sometimes we vociferously disagree. If you think the generally amiable Original Jurisdiction podcast needs more conflict, and if you think I'm too nice to my guests, you'll enjoy this episode. Love means never having to say you're sorry, right? Zach, are you game? Oh, I'm game. (laughs) Okay. First up, judicial celebrity. Going back to my time at Underneath Their Robes, my first blog before Above the Law and Original Jurisdiction, I was an early pioneer in turning judges into celebrities. But I must admit, I now have some second thoughts. There have been a number of thoughtful articles in law reviews and the popular press raising concerns about treating judges like celebrities. Some authors whose work I recommend include Craig Lerner, Nelson Lund, Susanna Sherry, and Rick Hassan. So let's dig in. Zach, judicial celebrity, 
too much of a good thing? I think it's obscene, personally. Actually, I'm a little disappointed, though. Once again, as you often do, acting like a milk toast moderate, I think you have a actually much greater love for judicial celebrity than you're letting on. So I want you to defend judicial celebrity first and give us your actual stance as opposed to this wishy-washy, oh, both sides are great, moderate stance. So I think that the proponents of what I would call judicial anonymity live in a bit of a fantasy world. It is inevitable that we are going to treat judges like people. We are post-legal realism. We understand that judges are not these disembodied legal machines. And so if we are going to look at them as people, this is actually a good thing for judicial transparency and accountability. They all bring their priors to the bench, as Justice Sotomayor controversially, but I think accurately noted. Judges don't necessarily reach the same conclusions based on their personal political views or their personal experiences. So why don't we pay attention to that so we can analyze their rulings appropriately. Yeah, you're not addressing the argument at all. The view is not whether they're human beings. Of course, we treat them as human beings. The view is whether they should be treated as celebrities. And that's what you're not addressing there. And I don't think they should be viewed as celebrities because I think it is absolutely corrosive to our judicial system, which operates on the idea, at least, of impartiality and the idea, at least, of a lack of bias in the cases before judges. And if they are treated as celebrities, or as you sometimes treat them as demigods, then I think, again, that is corrosive to the entire system and the idea of trying to occupy your role to be as impartial as you can be. Your argument does have a certain logic to it, but let's look at empirics. Let's look at the real world. The United States is, I would argue, the country with the most prominent judges, where we know the judges, we know their names, we know who they are, compared to other countries like many European nations where there are these anonymous civil servants, these Bartleby Scriveners. And I would put our judiciary in terms of intellect, in terms of intellectual strength of reasoning, in terms of impartiality, in terms of independence, I would put our judiciary up against the judiciary of any other country in the world, including those that treat judges like paper pushers. Yeah, I think that's a false binary. I strongly agree with you, in fact, that we have one of the greatest judicial systems in the world. But again, this idea that it's one or the other, where they're just paper pushing civil servants, which is often the case in continental countries, or their celebrities is a false choice. We can recognize, again, that they are people in incredibly important roles, and we can even appreciate to a point their judicial opinions and their writing styles. But there is a huge difference between that and treating them as celebrities, as you did at Above the Law, and you still have the tendency to do. <laughs> well, let me raise a sort of law and economics kind of point. People respond to incentives. Right now, it is well documented that judges earn, federal judges, also state judges, earn a fraction of what their counterparts in private practice earn. If we are going to continue attracting great legal minds to the bench, and we're going to pay them peanuts, and law firm profits per partner are going to continue to grow, and we make them anonymous so they don't even have the fun of getting Hold attention. On. You, you, you keep saying anonymous. I'm not talking about anonymity here. There's a huge difference between that again, and treating them as celebrities. And when I'm talking about celebrities, I mean the worship I see of RBG or Justice Scalia on the other side. And 
again, I don't think that is healthy for our system. Now, you've not only extended that, as others have, beyond the Supreme Court, which is troubling enough, but also to the circuit courts as well and the district courts. Again, I would maintain that some scrutiny is appropriate of these very powerful people. And I also would maintain that it is appropriate for us to express some gratitude to these people who are giving up lucrative careers in private practice to serve the country. And this is a form of non-monetary compensation. This is what makes judicial service still vaguely attractive to people in an era where profits per partner are four, five, six million dollars. I don't have a huge issue with raising their pay somewhat, but I do take issue with this idea that it is, you know, this humongous ultimate sacrifice. I think that being a judge is one for many, if not most of them, a wonderful job getting to work not only with clerks, but help craft law, but also an incredibly important one. So I just don't see if we stop suddenly worshiping them in the way that you and others have, that suddenly they will stop wanting to be judges or say, oh, it's just not worth it. Okay, fair point. I will say that the proof is in the pudding. We will see whether the trend of judges in their prime leaving the bench for lucrative careers in private practice continues and whether maybe we will raise their salaries, as Chief Justice Roberts is always talking about in his year-end reports. But let me now propose turning to some possible reforms to address this problem of judicial celebrity. And let me probe how far you are willing to go in stripping the judges and justices of celebrity status. One requirement that has been proposed by some academics is that judicial opinions, including concurrences and dissents, be issued anonymously. Another would simply be to have an opinion of the court, Supreme Court, Circuit Court, with no concurrences or dissents. If we simply had these anonymous opinions of the court, basically everything is a per curiam, just spat out there, we would have much less of a focus on the individual justices. Would it be a good thing? I would need to think more about it. As you expressed at the beginning, I haven't chewed over these topics, but it's a good question and one I would need to contemplate more. I would say that off the top of my head, I am certainly open to at least dissents and concurrences being anonymous. I think it would avoid the flashy dissent or the flashy concurrence where the judge or justice gets to prove how clever and witty they are. So just off the top of my head, yeah, I'd be open to something like that. But I would also need to think about the other consequences. And look, I acknowledge that there are downsides to the practice of having signed concurrences and dissents. I think a number of commentators from Sarah Isger to Dahlia Lithwick to Mark Joseph Stern to others across the ideological spectrum have pointed out that when you have judges able to issue these separate opinions, the lower court judges, in an age where you don't have a judicial filibuster, so all you need are those 51 votes, you have judges kind of playing to their base with these self-indulgent self-concurrences, sometimes where they're concurring with a majority opinion they wrote themselves to try and audition for the left or audition for the right. So I agree that that is potentially corrosive. But here's the pro. I think that when we know who's signing onto what, we can call them out for inconsistency. We knew that Justice Scalia was this self-professed textualist, but then when he would sign on to opinions that were wooly, people could call him out. So isn't there a value to the accountability? There might also be a value to being able, instead of focusing on the individual judges, to calling out the court itself for inconsistency. So at the end of the day, if you eliminated concurrences and dissents, which again, I'm not necessarily advocating, I would need to think more about it, but say you 
did eliminate them, then I think it would be more about the court itself and whether the court is being consistent or inconsistent. That's a fair point. And to those listeners who are thinking this is crazy talk, this was an approach that was taken in the early years of our Supreme Court and is an approach taken by other countries. So it's not crazy. Let me float another possible reform by you that has been suggested. Congress should require the court to hear at least one case certified from a circuit court or one diversity type case for every federal question case they choose from their discretionary docket. And so I believe it's Lerner and Lund who argue this. They believe that this would reduce the temptation to assemble a docket consisting largely of interesting or high-profile cases. Or, you know, you could come up with other variations. Maybe they have to accept some kind of statutory case instead of a constitutional case or something along those lines. Do you favor tweaking the court's docket so that it's not just all blockbusters about abortion and guns? In theory, I'm very in favor of that. I would like to make the court as boring as possible. (laughs) And that is certainly one avenue to do that. But what will we talk about over dinner and our car rides if we don't have these juicy opinions? I know. We'd have to find something else to talk about. Advisory opinions as well would have to figure out what are they going to chew on. It would seriously impact our life and perhaps our marriage. But (laughs) for the country, it's worth it. Oh, gosh. I guess I will have to return to my law school days of nerding out over ERISA preemption. I don't think you have to worry about that. I don't think these reforms are happening anytime soon. (laughs) Fair enough. I think you could argue that in some ways the parties are just escalating everything. And the Biden administration's nominees have been pretty left, just as the Trump administration's nominees were pretty right. So maybe it's just getting worse. But here's a third possible reform. Let me see what you think as a former law clerk. Congress should forbid, and Congress has some power over the courts. They could condition funding on certain things. The chief justice might say this is a violation of separation of powers, and lo and behold, who would probably decide this the court? But anyway, what about the notion of Congress or anyone, maybe the justices themselves, forbidding law clerks to draft judicial opinions? And again, this is not crazy. There have been a handful of justices and judges over the years. I shouldn't say a handful. In the earlier years, many who draft their own opinions. Retired Judge Richard Posner argued in favor of this in his book, Reflections on Judging. What do you think? Judges should draft their own opinions. I mean, I'm not as necessarily wedded to that since I think their voices do come through, perhaps a little too strongly, as we've discussed. One thing I will say at the risk of going off topic a little, I do think that district courts should perhaps have the most clerks as compared to circuit courts and the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, as we know, handles the least amount of opinions and that amount of opinions has been steadily going down. The circuit courts handle a good deal of opinions, but certainly less than the district courts. These district court judges are inundated with so much work to do, so many things. And for most people before them, they are the first and can be the last line. They can be the most important judge that they deal with and very much often is. And given their workload, given their importance on the ground, so to say, I think they should get more clerks. So that is something we probably agree on. It was an idea floated by Judge Posner in his book, Reflections on Judging, that district courts should get four clerks, circuit courts three, justices two. I am amused by the idea of justices hunting and pecking on their keyboards and doing their own Westlaw research, although some justices, like Justice Scalia, were known to be very hands-on. And we have one mutual friend who rated the justices on their self-sufficiency as if imagining they didn't have clerks. And I am all in favor of self-sufficient justices. 
I don't have particularly strong views on how many clerks the circuit courts or Supreme Court should get. I do think, though, at the very least, it should be the district court amount of clerks should match that. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And you also have this practice of district courts turning their other employees into clerks, but maybe they should have just more personnel. Going back to SCOTUS, though, in terms of Supreme Court reform, we've had a lot of controversies involving the court. There have been ethics controversies. There have been partisan issues. There have been people accusing the court of partisanship. There has been an ebbing of the court's standing and the court of public opinion. So let me ask you this. What is to be done? Is it time to reform the court in terms of structure, composition, how we pick the justices? What would you do? I would pack the court. (laughs) What do you mean by that? I would add more justices, not for partisan reasons. I feel like everyone who enters this debate, whether it's on the left or the right, you know, they want to do it because they want more liberal justices. They want more conservative justices. That is not my stance at all. I want to pack the court because I want to make it as boring as possible. And ultimately, I want to moderate its opinions. And often the best way to do that would be to add more and more members. Maybe it could lead to the court sitting on panels. Maybe it could lead to more accommodation on that end. But when I'm talking about packing the court, I'm not saying let's add two or three liberal or conservative justices. Let's make it 30 justices. Let's give it some thought at the very least. So... 30 justices. Hey, make it 50. You're right. I can see your skepticism. Why don't we make it 50? You will really cut a judicial celebrity if every other lawyer is a Supreme Court justice. Hey, at least I'm consistent. Well, you know, it's not a crazy idea. The Supreme Court of the Philippines, my ancestral homeland, has 15 justices. They sit in panels of, I think, three or five. They rarely sit on bonk. I love the Philippines. (laughs) I'm not sure that the Supreme Court of the Philippines is, though, the best example for this point. The most helpful example. The Philippine judiciary has had some issues, fair enough. But let me ask you this. How would we get to a court of 15 or 30? Oh, I think once one of the parties starts packing the court or starts adding new justices, the other will retaliate by also doing so. And where most people are going to say how terrible, I welcome it. Again, could this have unintended consequences? And of course, and I'm sure plenty of people will email in or voice them to you and perhaps me, but I would like to give it a try or at the very least people to think about it. And if, you know, one side starts doing it and then the other, and then you eventually have this massive court, I certainly don't think that's the end of the world. It's interesting. Someone around the time that Judge Garland was not getting a Supreme Court hearing, had some joke that, well, what if the parties just refuse to give each other's nominees hearings, and then it's the year 2050, and we have a one justice court of Justice Kagan or something. So this is almost the opposite of that. The Democrats add two or three justices, and then the White House changes, and the Senate changes, and then we get a bunch of Republican justices, and then the Democrats come back, and we get more Democratic justices. So I can see that. But don't you think at some point the fever would break and everyone would say, this is insane? Yes, I think there would be a detente. At that point, we would have a great deal more justices. And again, I think it might be an experiment worth having. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So let's say we agree to expand the court and we have your jumbo court of 30 or more justices. 
How would you change the method by which the justices are selected? Do you have a problem with the current system of presidential nomination and hearings and Senate confirmation, et cetera, et cetera? I would say that my ideal method would actually be sortition. Sortition is by lot, drawing by lot. The idea that individuals are randomly chosen through a certain system. I would have, in an ideal world, both parties select a certain amount of lawyers, maybe 500 on each side. And then in terms of which of those lawyers gets to be on the Supreme Court, draw it by lot. I think at the end of the day, it still makes sure you have a competent individual on the court. And at the same time, it eliminates this idea of I'm so special, you know, I'm so wonderful that out of everyone, I ended up on the Supreme Court because psychologically, it could have been any one out of the thousand. So this is consistent with your pushing back against judicial celebrity. But don't you think that the Supreme Court has a symbolic aspect where it is in some ways a repository of our nation's hopes and dreams? And don't you think it is inspiring when a Justice Thomas or a Justice Sotomayor or a Justice Jackson becomes the first or the second of a particular group or has an amazing life story of overcoming great adversity to make it to the court? Don't you think that there's something important that little boys and girls of all races and backgrounds can look at these justices and say, wow, that could be me, as opposed to just some kind of powerball? At the end of the day, it can be structured in a certain way to account for those things. But at the same time, I think it is important to prevent the kind of judicial celebrity that we currently see. So it's an interesting thought experiment, sortition, but I don't think it would ever come to pass in the real world. And here's why. I think both political parties want more control over their nominees, whether it's no more suitors or something like that. They want to be able to vet. And I don't know that you can find 500 people who are quote-unquote solid enough to either the left or the right to make this an attractive proposition to either the Democrats or the Republicans. Oh, I completely agree with that. I think that's <laughs> problematic, this test of being solid enough. You have to check off every box. And I don't think that in itself is a great thing and a great way that our system has been structured essentially and become. But do I think sortition is going to happen? No way. I actually think it is more likely that the court will eventually be packed and you'll have a back and forth on all side. But I would certainly welcome sortition not only on the Supreme Court, but perhaps in other democratic institutions in general. I want to kind of take away this idea that people got into this position because they are so special and unique. And ultimately, you know, they're more important than the institution and they therefore embody the institution. And I think ways in which to do that would be welcome and we should at least think about it more. So again, I definitely disagree with you on this. And I think part of it has to do with just how special and how powerful the Supreme Court is. It's often said that with, say, 36 or so Supreme Court clerks, oh, there are 100 or 150 or 200 great law students in the country who could do the job well. And I don't disagree with that. And maybe that could be made more sortition-y rather than justices clicking or vibing with people on personalities or getting recommendations from feeder judges or feeder professors. But the court, nine people, that's different from the 36-something clerks who cycle in and out each year. Like, these are very powerful, life-tenured people. And I think 
we as a country and also the political parties want more control over that and I think should have more control over that than just some kind of crazy lottery involving hundreds of people. This is like that famous quote about picking somebody out of the phone book rather than... Yeah, <laughs> putting 100, you know, or 500 people on both sides is not picking someone out of the phone book. You can probably think about the top of your head, <laughs> a thousand excellent lawyers. Is that the phone book? <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess you could take the original Jurisdiction podcast guest list or something. Yeah. By the way, and I'm going to just put this out there. I'm so against the idea of whether it's judicial celebrity or whatever you want to call it. But this is consistently runs through a lot of my thinking. I don't even think outside of their role in presiding over cases, we should refer to judges as judge or your honor. And this is something that drives me nuts. If sometimes judges will retire and they will continue to have them Selves referred as a judge. No, no. You are at that point Mrs. or Mr. You are not judge. You are not the institution. You are an individual who is part of that institution. Well, this is funny. Zach, you'll remember that with our wedding invites, we had these RSVP cards and there was M blank and you would fill in MRS or MS or MR. And the doctors on our guest list kept crossing out the M and putting in doctor. Yeah, I found that, again, you know, it's not just judges. And I know we've been talking about judges, and that's the focus here, but certainly not just judges. Again, if you're performing your medical services, then of course, in that moment, you are doctor. But if you are in a restaurant having dinner, or you're ordering in food, you are not doctor, and you should not be addressing yourself as such. And then the natural response is, well, what if someone in the restaurant has a heart attack? Okay, in that moment where you're helping them out, great, you're a doctor. But otherwise, you are not the institution. You are an individual as part of that institution. I, I'm sympathetic to that. I would just add a funny anecdote. The late Judge Silberman, who was a great jurist, was also a former ambassador. And I remember hearing that maybe he was talking to one of his law clerks. He used to say that when making restaurant reservations, make the reservation under Ambassador Silberman rather than Judge Silberman, because in D.C., people thought it was cooler to be an ambassador <laughs> than a judge. <laughs> I could definitely see that. You know, I am sympathetic to your point of view on the issue of former judges, because when judges leave the bench and then they go into litigation and then they're in court with opposing counsel and someone might refer to them as judge, there is a judge and that person, he or she, is sitting at the front of the room. And I think it's just weird when you call former judges and they're practicing. But maybe it's more innocuous if these folks are no longer practicing. I think that's right. I'm still against it. But I agree with you 100% that if you're, you know, on the other side, they're being referred to as judge. How can that not affect people's thinking in the room? Yeah, or give them an unfair advantage. What do you think about these ideas of not expanding the court through a constitutional amendment, but I think Professor Akhil Lamar, for example, has written about this, having situations where we have term limits for the justices. Eugene Volokh, many people, Steve Calabresi, many people have written about this. You have term limits for the justices. They rotate off the court at set intervals. Each president gets, say, a guaranteed two appointments. What would be bad about term limits? Oh, I don't oppose term limits. I just think as far as a constitutional amendment, that's just not going to happen. And it's far more likely that the court would be packed where you don't need a constitutional amendment than term limits would be instituted. Although Akhil Amar has, I believe, expressed that you wouldn't necessarily need a constitutional amendment. Is that right? 
Yes, he has a very interesting proposal, which he has written about and discussed on his own podcast, where he says, well, what if we have a situation where they remain Supreme Court justices, but we have active and we have senior ones, and maybe the senior ones can serve on lower courts, or maybe the senior ones can serve if there's a recusal, and maybe we could just have it done through some kind of agreement, or maybe nominees would just pledge to step down at a certain point. But some people have pushed back and said that they do think a constitutional amendment is needed. Nikhil Amar is a brilliant guy, but I think it's a bit convoluted and too clever by half. (laughs) Oh, come now. Isn't that what law is all about? That's what legal academia is all about, certainly. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of judicial celebrity, you earlier alluded to the late Justice Ginsburg, the late Justice Scalia. So here's my question. Justice Scalia, great justice or greatest justice of our (laughs) lifetimes? I think that there's a lot of idol worship, unfortunately, of Justice Scalia. If you talk to most conservatives, they will say he is indeed the greatest, the best. He was a phenomenal writer. He certainly was a pioneer in terms of originalism on the Supreme Court, although he certainly did not come up with it. But I think that often his partisan instincts led him astray, and he was not a consistent originalist necessarily, and often aligned with, you know, 1980s Republican views. Well, in his defense, I know you and I have had this argument endlessly, there are areas where his rulings did not line up with his political priors. For example, he famously joked that he should be the pinup girl for the criminal defense bar. He was a pioneer of the Sixth Amendment, and he hates criminals. I I know, he would always love to throw that out to prove things, but then you read so many of his other opinions, and it didn't go that way. I also want to clarify, I am not an advocate of originalism, and I know we disagree on that, but my critique of Scalia is that he was wasn't necessarily even internally consistent about his originalism. So at the risk of opening up a can of worms that we have opened up many times in our bedtime discussions, what is the alternative to originalism? Isn't it just like what Winston Churchill said about democracy? It's sort of imperfect, but the best we have. I think we'd be better off with a form of textualism and restraint than originalism, which ultimately turns judges into historians. And lawyers are not historians, and I don't think they're particularly good historians when they attempt to be. I'm a big proponent of judicial restraint, and I'm not a fan of common good constitutionalism, and I'm not a fan of judicial engagement rather than judicial restraint. And one of my favorite lower court judges is Judge Wilkinson of the Fourth Circuit, who is, I think, in many ways, Mr. Restraint. But what is so problematic about, say, having originalism with an overlay of judicial restraint? I mean, what does that mean? Like, we are originalists, but tie goes to the legislature or the executive or whatever non-judicial branch is at issue. I don't think that makes a ton of sense. I think the whole point of originalism is when you have a tie or when you have uncertainty to then consult, you know, what the public at the time would have understood the constitutional provision to mean. And I think originalists think that there is an answer there. That's the whole point. If you can't get to the answer through originalism, then what good is it? But again, what is the alternative? Isn't it profoundly anti-democratic to have judges applying laws just because, say, language has evolved? Shouldn't we be interpreting those words as they were understood at the time of the amendment or the statute? I 
think that at the end of the day, what should govern is the text and how we understand it now through ordinary meaning rather than going back and trying to be a historian and figure that out. Isn't it perverse, though, to say that judges can just apply laws that no legislature supported just because the language changed around us? That seems very bizarre. I think that the text should be interpreted as it was understood at the time of the enacting when some democratic group of people, whether ratifiers of the Constitution or the amendment, or members of a legislature actually agreed on the thing. I don't buy the whole idea that originalism is legitimated through contract theory. Obviously, the folks who put the Constitution in motion, as brilliant as they were, did not represent many, if not most, people at the time, and certainly not the people of today. So I think the goal should be to understand a text in current terms, including the Constitution. And ultimately, you're not going to get a answer in all those provisions. Some for good reason. For instance, the Second Amendment, which it seems was written confusingly. But I think that there should be when we have ambiguity or vagueness, whether constitutionally or in statutes, the tie should go to judicial restraint or the status quo. Again, maybe this is a little bit far afield, but what think you about Chevron deference, the idea of deferring to an administrative agency's interpretation of a statute it administers, which is going to be the subject of a Supreme Court case in the upcoming term? I'm not in love with Chevron deference. And why not? Because, again, judges, lawyers should interpret the text. That is their job, and they should go from there. By the way, for those legal nerds out there, I think the same about this major questions doctrine. David, you might want to explain that. Yes, so the major questions doctrine essentially holds that when deciding if a statute allows for some kind of agency action, the court has to determine whether or not this major question of social or economic or political importance was entrusted to the agency by the legislature. But really, I am less worked up about major questions doctrine than others. I would refer people to Justice Barrett's excellent dissent in, uh, was it the student loans case? Biden v. Nebraska. I think the point that she makes is, look, this is really just a reframing of existing doctrine regarding separation of powers and whatnot, isn't it? I think it's a very well-written and excellent concurrence. That said, I don't agree with it because at the end of the day, it becomes what is a major question? And that is going to be one which judges are either going to have to develop all sorts of convoluted multifactorial tests or ultimately going to end up deciding based on their pre-existing biases, which is something I think we've already seen. So I find it very puzzling because it seems to reintroduce the very things that conservatives criticize into the jurisprudence. I think it's just sort of a helpful heuristic, but To be fair, I understand your point in the sense that this court generally seems to be in favor of discarding multi-factor tests and balancing tests and just kind of going back to the basics. And yet, on this issue, it seems to be one of these situations where instead of just focusing on the text or focusing on the constitutional issues, they want to come up with a test of their own. Yeah, I thought the whole point was to focus on the text and give as much of a good faith reading as you can instead of introducing new 
legal theories. And they will, of course, say, oh, this has always been in place. But the fact is, the way it's being conceptualized is new. And so you're bringing this forward, which is inevitably going to create greater confusion to answer what is a major question, one. And two, likely, in order to answer that, going to introduce a whole new series of tests in the lower courts. Let me close with something where maybe we agree or maybe we don't agree. Legal movies. One thing we argued about in the pages of the newsletter, to which I commend podcast listeners, is My Cousin Vinny. And you pushed back on the notion that it is the greatest legal movie of all time. Do you still adhere to that? Or did the flaming and flailing you got in the comments section convince you otherwise? There was a lot of rage in the comments section. My view is not that My Cousin Vinny is a bad movie. My Cousin Vinny is a good movie. It has some very funny moments. It has some excellent acting. But the idea that it's a masterpiece is beyond me. Do you have an alternative nomination for best legal movie? Legally Blonde is certainly more my speed than yours. I prefer Legally Blonde to My Cousin Vinny, but I would have to say The Devil's Advocate is the But that was so ridiculous. It wasn't even vaguely realistic. At least My Cousin Vinny, while amped up, it was, you could imagine the something. The Devil's like, Advocate wasn't trying to be realistic. For heaven's sake, spoiler alert, it's about someone who ends up working at a law firm which is run by Satan. Okay, so let me close on a non-legal note, but still on the movies. And speaking of a wild film that diverges from realism, the critical darling, Oscar-winning, everything, everywhere, all at once. Mediocre or terrible? Well, I know it's good we're ending on this, so it's something we agree on. I think you may give it a terrible and dislike it more than me. I thought it was merely mediocre. (laughs) And a lot of my reaction to it was just the acclaim it had gotten. It was not particularly interesting, and it was not particularly weird. One of the big, you know, things was it was just trying so hard. The whole thing just felt like an exercise in just trying. I mean, you want weird? Watch a David Lynch film. Even though I tend to like things that are a little more narratively clean than David Lynch, I will take Mulholland Drive or Blue Velvet or any of these other films over everything, everywhere, which I just thought was a mess. And and I boring. Fell asleep. It was it was, exactly. it was boring. It just, I fell asleep. It was yeah. really boring. Forget about the way it was trying to be deep. It wasn't deep. There was nothing deep about that film. <laughs> I will agree with you. I think it was faux profound. Well, on that note, I suspect we will hear from some listeners and newsletter readers who disagree with us on that film or any number of other issues. But again, honey, actually, we don't really call it each other that. But Hell, I, what was uh, that? never heard that word come out of your mouth directed at me at least (laughs) I guess yeah and I won't call each other dear either but um, certainly not (laughs) well anyway you (laughs) Zach that's more like it thank you very much for joining me and filling in as a pinch hitter here yeah happy to do it well listeners thank you so much thanks to Zach for joining me I guess he didn't have much of a choice he took me for better or worse for richer or poorer with or without a podcast guest but I'm grateful nonetheless. Thanks NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter, if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, August 9th. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>